Please take, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Revelation. We are in Revelation chapter 8. While our focus today will be on verses 6 through 12, we will read uh, beginning in verse 1 as this next, the introduction to this next vision is given to us here in um, chapter 2 of, of, or verse 2 of chapter 8. Um, John's focus, the, the visions, the focus of the vision, the first vision was focused on how death and suffering affects the life of the child of God and how that child of God is sealed um, to God so that ultimately the child of God is protected from the suffering and death that comes through this world. Uh, this next vision will shift to see how suffering and death affects those who are not sealed by God, those who are not God's children. Um, and the rest of the visions will kind of look at that as we go through this, but it doesn't mean that it's not written to the child of God either. Um, we can learn lessons from these things as well, these visions as well. So please read along as I read Revelation chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of the saints went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet and there came hail and fire mixed with blood and it was hurled down upon the earth. A third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned to blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet and a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light and also a third of the night. Let us pray. Great God of light, you have told us that your word is the lamp and the light for our lives. The word illumines the path as we read and study, and your word is written upon our heart so that the light can shine out of us as well as into our lives. As we look at this passage that can be difficult to understand, help us to see your glory and your call to live lives of repentance. In Jesus' name, amen. When I mention the Exodus of Israel, what do you normally think of? Now, you may think of the book of Exodus. You may think of the Israelites wandering around the wilderness for 40 years. You may think of God's faithfulness in the face of blatant examples of Israel's unfaithfulness. The vision of the seven trumpets found in Revelation 8 through 11 will, will point us to the exodus of Israel from Egypt uh, through its imagery, through its symbolism. 
Specifically, it points us to the very beginning of the book of the exodus of Israel and also to the very uh, to the end of their exodus and their entrance into the promised land. Before Israel was released from their time of bondage to Egypt, God worked mighty wonders, systematically tearing down the gods and the beliefs of Egypt through the ten plagues. Five of the trumpets that we will look at in this vision will evoke these plagues of Egypt. We'll see the fiery hail, the water turned to blood, darkness, and locusts. And it's a reminder that God is sovereign over the natural orders. And he uses nature for his glory and his purposes. After Israel was released from Egypt and wandered around the wilderness for 40 years, the people entered, a, entered the promised land and God had them enter the promised land at a point where their first act in the promised land was the confrontation of a fortified kingdom, a fortified city. God gave them a battle plan that involved marching around that city for six days, and then on the seventh day, marching around it seven times, and then following the blast of seven trumpets, that kingdom would fall. And so in this vision, this third vision of the book of Revelation, we are taught that God is sovereign over creation and over the kingdoms and the people that exist in it. And so we will learn as we look at this that when you see natural disasters, when you see kingdoms fall, the Christians should take comfort and the world should seek repentance. The first thing as we look at these four trumpets we'll see is that nature is something that God uses to judge the wicked. The book of Revelation is an answer to the question of suffering Christians. Revelation answers the question, how long must your people suffer for their faithfulness to you, O Lord, O God? So far, it has answered this question by showing Jesus glorified and exercising God's sovereignty in the world. It has answered this question by direct promises and calls to repentance to the seven churches and then ultimately to all the churches. It has answered this question by showing that God's people are sealed against the full harm of judgment because of the blood of Jesus. And it has answered this question by showing the worth and power of the prayers of the saints. This vision of the trumpets will carry on this answer to the question, how long? And it opens by calling Christians to look at natural disaster and the fall of human kingdoms as signs that God is already working to judge evildoers and to vindicate his people. But we must keep in mind as we look at these things that our first step in seeing these as the beginning of God's judgment upon sinful people is to remember that these are calls to repentance as well. Trumpets in the Old Testament had several uses. Some were used to call people to the temple for worship. Some were used to call people to celebration for national holy days or blessings from the king. But trumpets were also used in a, for a military purpose. They were used to gather and to move troops around the battlefields in the day before walkie-talkies and the days before cell phones when, when with a, a mere speaking into an electronic piece of equipment, you could move troops all over the place. You had to blow trumpets to, to sound signals. But they were also used as warnings of impending invasion 
or, or coming danger. And that is how the trumpets are used here. They are used as warnings. See, these first uh, six trumpets marshal the forces of nature, marshal the forces of falling empires, marshal the forces of demonic torments to warn the wicked to repent and to be saved. And we see this warning function if we were to fast forward to the end of chapter 9, where John says the rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. They did not repent of their lack of love for God as shown in the worshiping of idols, nor did they repent for their lack of love for brother and sister, for neighbor and friend, as seen that they did not repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immoralities, or their thefts. People always ask why God allows natural disaster. And the answer to this question, while it needs to be worked out, while it needs to be prayerfully thought over and lovingly explained, is that it is through natural disaster that God shows that he is a God who hates sin and he calls sinners to repent. We see this in the link to Pharaoh in Egypt. Pharaoh, at any point through those 10 plagues, as things got worse, as the wealth of Egypt was was systematically destroyed through these plagues. At any point in the process, Pharaoh could have humbled himself. He could have said, the God of Israel is greater than the God of Egypt. He could have said, I will follow the will of the God of Israel rather than the gods of Egypt. And all of that would have stopped as he allowed the Israelites to leave, as he freed them from from their slavery. But in that account, we are told repeatedly that Pharaoh's heart was hardened, either by his own will, his own volition, or by God piling evidence upon evidence of God's power and Pharaoh's unwillingness to bow to that power. Because of Pharaoh's hardening, he kept doubling down on his unwillingness to repent and to let the people go. That's something important for us to understand is that oftentimes people will be confronted by God's power. People will be confronted by God's judgment and his justice and his gospel and his good news of forgiveness and mercy. And yet they will continue to double down in their sin. They will continue to double down on their rejection of God, walking further and further away from him and from his salvation. We also see the link to repentance as we look at Jericho and consider Rahab and the offer that she had for safety and salvation. Rahab hid the spies, affirmed that the God of Israel was stronger than the gods of Jericho. And for that, she was saved. And she was told, mark your house, mark your window, and anybody of your family that is there with you, anybody that is under your roof when the city falls, will be saved, will avoid judgment. The people had seven days to move to Rahab's home. And yet once the seventh trumpet sounded, it was too late. 
So the focus of this vision moves from the suffering of the dead saints to how God will seek to warn, to judge in a preliminary way, seen in the fact that only one third of, of the earth is affected in this. But that through natural forces in these four trumpets, that God is calling those who are in rebellion against him to repent. These first four trumpets look at decreation, if you will, in preparation for a new creation. And God is showing decreation as as the means that he uses to bring about warning and judgment. The first reference, first trumpet references the plague of hail from Exodus 9, 22 through 25, except instead of only affecting the nation of Egypt, it affects one third of the earth. This fiery hail destroys grass and fruit bearing trees, causing devastation and death, most likely through famine. We see fire once again in the second trumpet as the second trumpet and the third trumpet reference uh, the, the first plague where the Nile was turned to blood in Exodus 7 verses 20 and following. In the second trumpet, we see the oceans and the life in the oceans affected. In the third trumpet, we see the rivers and freshwater sources and the life within them affected as well as they are poisoned with the bitterness. The fourth trumpet affects the light of the skies, the sun, the moon, and the stars, which is a reference to the darkness that affected the Egyptians in Exodus 10, 21 through 23. As an aside, I've been asked, why do you see these as cycles of visions rather than one chronological vision that begins at point A and ends at point B? Well, this right here is one of the reasons. Because in the, sixth, in the sixth seal, as it was broken, the sun, the moon, and the stars were utterly destroyed as the skies were rolled up like a scroll. And yet here we see the sun, the moon, and the stars dimmed. And honestly, as humbly as I can say, it would be hard for them to be dimmed anymore, having already been utterly destroyed. But this trumpet likely points to the darkness and despair that comes from knowing that you have no control over the forces of nature and the loss of hope that comes from the foolish statement, there is no God. Brothers and sisters, when we choose not to believe that God exists, that God is powerful, where do we turn? Now, oftentimes we turn to nature. We turn to, uh, the, to the world to the trees, to the mountains. We, we see this in, in the manifestation of, of, of spirit worship that shows up in primitive tribes and, and is astoundingly showing up in our supposedly technologically advanced culture. As we worship the trees, as we worship the, the, the spirits of the flowers and the animals, when we idolize the things of this earth above God, We think that nature can offer the hope and peace that only God can give. If we could just appease Mother Nature, everything would be okay. There's a problem with nature, though. Alfred Lord Tennyson wrote a poem in memoriam to a friend, and in the poem, he he coined the phrase, red in tooth and claw. He said, how can we look at nature as something good as something that gives us hope and and saving when nature is violent and destructive. Wolves, tigers, coyotes are out there ripping 
and shredding weaker animals to pieces. And we look to that for peace. We look to that for hope. And when we are confronted by the violence and destruction of nature, we are tempted to lose hope, to find darkness, to find utter despair. When we worship nature, we will be betrayed and we will be destroyed if we are unrepentant. We also see in this, not only does God use nature to judge, but the fall of kingdoms, the fall of of nations points us to the fact that God will judge. As the second trumpet is blown, John sees a blazing mountain fall from the sky and bring destruction upon the seas. How many people have viewed this as an asteroid striking the earth or a volcanic explosion? They view the star falling as maybe a, I don't know, a nuclear missile that may have, that, that poisons the waters, the fresh waters. But if we look back to the Old Testament, as we should do whenever we read the book of Revelation, we see mountains used in a way that helps us see the nature of falling kingdoms. See, Old Testament prophets speak of kingdoms that are the objects of God's judgment as mountains. We see this generally in Isaiah 41.15, again in Isaiah 42.15, in Ezekiel 35, and in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 7. Specifically, Jeremiah speaks in Jeremiah 51.25 and also 63 through 64. Jeremiah calls Babylon in his prophecy of judgment that would come upon Babylon for the evils and atrocities that they would perform against the nation of Israel. Jeremiah describes them as a fiery mountain that will be sunk into the depths of the sea. Later on in the book of Revelation, we will see Babylon is used to symbolize Rome. And all this together, even, even the wormwood that we see here is a, is a word that's really only used twice in the Old Testament. And both times it is used by Jeremiah to describe judgment that was coming specifically on Israel for their rebellion. But generally upon rebellious kingdoms who worshipped anything other than God. So we put all this together. It points us to the reality that not only does God use nature as a preliminary judgment, but he will also bring down pagan kingdoms as a sign of his judgment. Now to the original readers of the book of Revelation, this would have brought comfort to them. It foreshadows the fall of Rome that will be foreshadowed a little bit more explicitly later on in the book of Revelation, but it begins that process of letting the people know that the the governmental systems that are persecuting you today will fall. God will judge Rome for its sin and its persecution against the people of God. When the sovereignty or existence of God is denied, people will worship nature. But if they choose not to worship nature, oftentimes they will worship governments. Government is viewed as absolute in its definition of what is right and what is wrong. Government is seen as the ultimate fixer of what is wrong in the world. Over the last two weeks, we have had two horrifically violent events in our country. 
One, I would say, is more horrific because of where it took place in an elementary school. And instead of asking the hard questions, why? What led this young man to do this heinous act? Why did he choose elementary students? What happened to him at school that would make him attack this place as his only hope and see their death as their only hope? What creates that emptiness within a human being? And how can I deal, how do I deal, how do you deal with your violent impulses without acting out on them? Instead of asking the hard questions of where hope is found and where true solving of these problems can come from, we go to the government and we say, make such and such illegal. Government, you have the ability to make this right. You have the ability to eliminate evil. You have the ability to eliminate harm in our world. Brothers and sisters, our country is made up of sinful individuals, which means our government is made up of sinful individuals, which means that whether you are looking for an earthly utopia or you are looking for the preservation of the church, government will fail you every single time. Only God can bring about the hope, the change, the glory that we need, that we desperately want. And when we turn to government for those things that only God can answer, that only God can give. Well, as we've seen throughout history, every single government system ultimately betrays its adherence and leads to destruction. Governments will betray their people. Governments have betrayed God. And God will use the destruction of government to show and to warn of his coming judgments. And we have this glorious message here that's easy for us to overlook. Numbers are important in the book of Revelation. We know that this is not complete judgment because it's, we are told that it, it shows one third of the earth is affected. One third of the people are affected. Which means that initially God is not going to bring everybody to the point of judgment. God tarries to give people time to repent. And that, that, that one-third that is in there repeatedly happens 12 times in these 12 verses. Reminds us that there is always opportunity until Christ returns or until we die to repent and to have the judgment upon us pass over us and land on the cross. I know I've said some hard things today about the nature of God's judgment as it works itself out in our world today and our nature and through the rise and fall of kingdoms. How should we as children of God, how should you as a child of God respond when these things happen? First off, mourn. Cry. Weep for the loss of life, whether it's through some kid who who wandered into, not wandered, but charged into a school, raining death and destruction, or whether it's through a hurricane that hits a city, 
or a flood that rages through a valley. We're called to weep with those who weep and to mourn with those who mourn. And that's where we should start. I know I do. I would imagine some of you do. Sometimes our first reaction to natural disaster, to kingdoms falling is anger, is fear. When God calls us to mourn. Next, repent. As we see God's hand in nature, as we see God's hand in the rise and fall of kingdoms, we should be reminded that you and I have areas of our lives where we do still put our hope in the natural order or in the kingdoms of this earth. You know, Luke 13, we have this account and and these people come to Jesus and they asked about these people who died at Pilate's hand in a horrific way. And we get the sense there that what they're asking for is for Jesus to make a judgment, not on Pilate, but on the people who died. A judgment that basically says, well, they deserved it because they were sinners. Jesus flips the table on them. He says, you're asking me the wrong question. You need to ask yourself, where do I deserve judgment? Where do I deserve death? And where should I repent? Too many times, And I'm speaking in general and not necessarily speaking of this church, but too many times in my lifetime has the church been the first to jump up after natural disaster and say they deserved it. Jesus said, no, you deserve it, except for my grace. So we mourn, we repent. Next, we serve. Love of neighbor means that you find ways to be first on the scene in whatever capacity you can. You know, the church, Christians, you should be the first to give. You should be the first to volunteer. You should be the first to help when and where you can according to the means that you have been given. It doesn't mean you help out with every single one. You have to be wise with your money. You have to be wise with making sure you and your family are taken care of. But we don't hoard our money. We don't hoard our time when things like this happen. And I know many of you are the first to give. Many of you are the first to volunteer. Thirdly, we take and offer comfort. Jesus tells the persecuted church, when you see death and destruction of nature and when you see the fall of kingdoms, you can take heart that God is still sovereign. Take heart that none of these things happened outside of God's will, outside of God's sovereignty. So hard things for us to think about, but we can take comfort in that. And we don't merely hold that comfort close We share it with those who need the comfort in the midst of the darkness and despair of living in this world. Lead people to the light of reconciliation with God. Brothers and sisters, what have you placed your hope in other than God? Is it your desires? Is it nature? Is it government? Is it your bank account? What is it that you have placed your hope in for comfort and peace in this life rather than in God. It will fail. It will bring darkness. But know that God shines the light of his glory through his spirit. He offers forgiveness for those who repent and turn back to him. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, I ask that you would lead us to mourn Lord, we look at the loss of life around us, not just in these horrific incidences, but the everyday loss of life through natural disaster, through brakes not working on cars, through 
bodies slowing down and stopping to work, through illness that comes um, in the form of cancers and, and viruses and bacterias. And we weep and we mourn. And we look and we are reminded that you are a God who takes sin seriously. You take it so seriously that you took its punishment upon yourself so that we could have forgiveness. So Lord, help us to take comfort in the midst of all these things, to not fall prey to the darkness and despair of idolatry, but to rest in your life-giving light. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go this week. Take this blessing upon you. To those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.